This is the Seek Outside Podcast, brought to you by Seek Outside. The following few episodes are recorded during the 2020 pandemic spring, so we have some extra time on our hands. The next few guests are going to be super interesting and educational. We're going to have backcountry rescue. We're going to have backpacking photography. We're going to have pack rafting, family adventure. So tune in and learn. Hey, this is Kevin with Seek Outside, and we have Dennis and Nathan with us today, Seek Outside crew. Uh, Dennis recently posted uh, some stories on Instagram and on social, and we got a lot of questions and stuff, so we thought we would just do a Q&A and kind of go over a lot of the questions he was asked and give our opinions about them in a more long-form um, format. Uh, Dennis is going to drive this one, so there you go. Dennis, take it on. Over. All right. Hello, everybody. Um, so first question I got on the Instagram kind of post stories that we were doing was uh, DIY seam sealing. Like, why can I do it at home? How hard is it? And are you guys really good at it? I guess was kind of the gist of the question. If you can tie your shoes or change the oil in your vehicle, you can seam seal a tent. Um what I do is to usually I'll, I'll just squirt seam sealer directly onto the seam, press it in with a finger, uh, make it go as far as possible, have a paper towel in my offhand uh, to clean up any mess. And yeah, I mean, it, it just, it takes time. It's a little bit messy and there are some areas that, that need to be done very well. Um, you can, certainly read our seam sealing instructions on the website and and do an A++ job. Um, the ones that we do at the at the shop are well done. And another uh, another thing to think about is during winter we seam seal most of the tents ourselves uh, because you need temperatures above about 50 or 60 and it needs to be dry. And if you're pitching a big tent in your yard, most of the country doesn't have temperatures like that. So we do a lot of them in the winter, fewer of them in the in the summer. I would, awesome. I, would, I would tend to agree. I personally prefer to seam seal myself, but in the winter, it's the seam sealing outside is not really an option. Um, so can you touch on, you had said, you know, there's a couple areas that you need to be more concerned about. Um, can you touch on those uh, so, that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so we flat fell our seams, and that means that the the seam, the two pieces of fabric are basically put together and then folded in on itself before it's sewn, <clears throat> and that makes a very water to watertight seam. Um, so in all the water testing I've done, water tends to just flow down those seams and it doesn't penetrate. So you can take like an eight person teepee that has huge long runs of seam. And if there's nothing sewn into that seam, they don't leak. Um, there may be some exceptions to that, but that's been my experience. They're very, very watertight right out of the box where you get issues is anywhere you sew anything into the seam, such as a door tie back or a label or, um, you know, a stove jack, um, Anything like that that can catch water or allow water to move from the outside to the inside of the tent. 
uh, and those are going to be the the areas that that you need to pay you need to pay careful attention to and make sure that they're done very very well. Uh, the rest of it you can kind of do a you know an okay or maybe even a slacking type job and you'll be fine on those flat fills if you get the critical areas done. Cool. And is there a recommendation for the stove jack itself, like compared to the other seams? Uh, the top of it needs to be done very, very well. Um, I mean, it, it just, you need to siliconize the, the binding around the outside um, and just make sure that you do a good job on the outside. It doesn't hurt to touch the inside either. And as with anything, um, the first time you test it, you don't want it to be in remote Alaskan wilderness. Um, so if you have the ability, when you get the thing pitched and you let it cure for a day, turn a garden hose on it and see if you can make it leak. And if you can, fix those leaks. Got it. So just a, a little tri trial and error sometimes. Well, it's just uh, it's just common sense, you know. Yeah. Um, another, another question as far as the the seam ceiling goes. What about like a twelve man teepee? Yeah. Is, the, that, is the, that easy the, for me to seal at home? Uh, it depends on how big your yard is, whether you have a step ladder or not. Um, <laughs> they're not really easy for anyone to seam seal. They're just so big. Um, mm -hmm. And you can mess with the pitch some and open the doors up further. Where you really have issues with those is being able to reach all of the seam just because they're so tall. So one thing you can do is to actually pitch it inside out so that the outside part of it is actually on the inside of the tent. And that will allow you to reach all of the seams uh, at the top much easier than if it was pitched right side out because then you know you're leaning over on a step ladder trying to reach those middle seams in between the doors and it, it just gets really tough to do that um mm -hmm. so yeah from my experience watching uh the guys in the shop seam seal the tents i would say anything that you can reach the top of easily is is doable at home and then something such as like an eight man or 12 man TP would be a little bit harder to do at home. Yeah. And, and stuff like the small tents, like a Silex or Eolus, you can have those done in like 10 minutes or less. It's super quick. There's not many seams at all. Um, but when you start getting into eight, you know, eight person territory, you may be at that for a couple of hours um, to do a, to do a good job at it totally um anything else around seam sealing i guess another thing some people um, ask or, or want to know is, is little pinholes in their tarps and stuff they can still use that seam sealer to to patch those little holes is that correct yeah you sure can especially ember holes which are just a, a pinhole um and then if you do get a tear or some, if it's small, you can stabilize that with tenacious tape. And then, uh, you know, you can even seam seal over that if you want. Um, so, yeah, it, it's pretty useful stuff. Uh, another thing people ask is how often you need to reapply seam sealer. Mm. Um, there's really not a good answer for that except years. 
of course, depending on how much UV you're in. So, you know, if you pitch it for four months a year um, and you're out in weather a lot, you will need to seam seal it more frequently than someone who pitches it two weeks a year. Uh, Kevin, do you have any more guidance on the on the frequency of seam sealing or how long it will last? No, no, <clears throat> no, not really. I've never had to. I've never had to redo one. Um, you know, it's really been pretty much a one and done thing. A lot of times, I do carry a little half tube of seam sealer on, on me, especially on more remote trips or trips when I don't care so much about weight. Um, but I've really never had to pull it out and do any touch-ups or do anything with it. Cool. And then just to kind of close up our seam seal uh, talk, what seam sealer are we using on our tents? Anybody know off the top of their head? It's a standard McNett seam sealer. McNett, yeah, I think it... Um, I think it's called Seam Grip Plus Sill, right? I think they just changed yeah. the name. But... Yeah, they changed the name. You can also use um, some of the clear silicone caulks, like the the GE Premium mm -hmm. uh, clear caulk. Uh, if you get a tube of that, which is usually like four bucks at the hardware store, you can probably seal tents for the rest of your life off of that one tube, as long as you're not OCD about ordering tents every couple months. Um, however, they do run, they do act a little bit differently. And the magnet is the easier um, solution. Got it. That is a question too that comes up a lot. Can you go to the hardware store and get some silicone sealer? I've used, I've used the GE uh, clear silicone, outdoor rated, of course. It's got the uh, UV stabilization in it. And it, it does it does a good job. It's cheap, comes in a big tube. Um, I've used it quite a bit. Hmm. Interesting. And then you just you can just put a bead over that and do the same thing. You just run your finger down that bead yep. after you put it on. Yep, absolutely. Huh. I've used that to seam seal backpacks and tents. Interesting. Huh. That's cool stuff. Um, so moving on, I guess from uh, seam seal, let's talk nests a little bit. Nests seem to be a very popular subject. Uh, this weekend, I had a half Cimarron nest pitched in a Cimarron, and people had questions, uh, a lot of questions about tips for pitching the nest itself. So um, and we can take this in any order, um, just, just general tips, and then also staking tips for the Cimarron nest. Um, you might even want to start on that. Um, well, there's there's different ways you can pitch the nest. You can connect the nest straight to the stake loops for the canopy, and that will allow you to leave them connected to each other and pitch the canopy and the nest at the same time in the future. Um, and to do that, we send out short pieces of cordage. And what I do is and i say what i do because there are different ways of doing this but what i do is i just make an overhand loop in one end of the piece of cordage and then i use a lark's head also known as a cow hitch uh, around the stake loop so basically you just run the loop the, the overhand loop that you've made through the stake loop and then run it the cordage through itself and that makes a cow hitch and then you 
run the tag in through the line lock that's on the nest and tighten it from there, get your footprint uh, taut, and then you actually put a prussic knot on the pole and run the long line to the center line lock uh, on the top of the nest. And that allows you to pull tension on the entire nest at the same time. And that works on the halves. It's different for the full because the pole goes inside the full. Um, mm -hmm. But that it works that way in all of the half nests. That's how I, basically all I think we could break it. I think we could break it down into types of nests. Even um, some shelters have a real tight integration with a nest. Um, that would be like Eolus, Silex, um, Little Bug Out, and that three-piece vestibule. And, and those, you know, the the nest can be integrated in pretty much straight up with the stake loops and the guy outs and everything. Some of them have a little bit looser integration or are a little bit more generic. And those you often end up doing the prussic on the pole. And then there's the full nest. The full nest basically have tension straps on the top and then the pole is inside the nest. Um, so I think there's a ton of different ways to do it. Um, as far as the knots, like Nathan, he has his knots. I know Lacey has her own setup that she does. She uses some sort of clove hitch that she ties every time, but she's like, a clove hitch is so easy to do, right? I do like a combination slip knot and overhand when I want them together. Um, Dennis probably does a different way than all of us. Um, so there's a lot of preference there. Yeah, totally. And so just getting back to that, Nathan, what Nathan was talking about was connecting to the stakeout loops uh, connecting the nest to the stakeout loops, you're leaving those pieces of cordage just tied right into those loops all the time, right? Yeah, I pretty much do. If I want to detach the nest, then I just take the cordage out of the line locks and pull the nest out, and I, I just leave the the cordage attached to the stake loops. Um, now, if I were doing an ultra ultralight trip. The good thing about those cow hitches is they are super quick to pull off. So I, I could pull that cordage off very easily if I wanted to. But for me, um, most of them, the, it, it's not that big of a deal. So I, I tend to just leave the cordage there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that just makes putting the nest in that much easier, right? When you yeah, get it, it does. Yeah. Now you, you can uh, pitch a nest independently without using the cordage or the, the canopy stake loops. And what you would do there is just take some titanium shepherd stakes and um, just stake the nest out independently. Um, just run the shepherd stake through the, the little grow gain loop that the line lock is sewn in with and just stake it out. And the reason that you would use a shepherd stake there is uh, because it, is a rounded top. So if you step on it or something, uh, you're not going to hurt your foot or poke a hole in the bottom of the nest or something. And what, what the independent staking allows you to do is to pitch a smaller nest inside a bigger shelter. Um, so you can pitch an LBO or a red cliff nest in a six or eight person. You can take your six person nest and pitch it inside a 12 or an, you know, an eight inside a 12 et cetera, et cetera. It really opens up your, uh, your nest flexibility a bit. 
Got it. Just by being able to bring in a few extra stakes to stake out your nest, you could put uh, a Cimarron half nest inside an eight man just just yep. fine, easily. Yep. And and that makes it a little more cost effective to have you know two tents, um, and does make it a bit more usable. If you've got a Cimarron with a half nest, you add an eight. You know, you can still use that nest to sleep you and your wife or or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it just just stretches the usability a bit. Cool. Uh, staying on the on the nest topic for a second too. Uh, a lot of people run wondering how many how many nests in the various shelters, right? So kind of talking Cimarron, Red Cliff, six man, eight man type shelters. How many nests can you run with a stove? Um, and I know we can we can again it's very open kind of fluid there because you could put different nests in different sizes. But just starting with a Cimarron. Right, like um, how many nests in a Cimarron and a stove? Uh, one half nest in a Cimarron with a stove. And I think that I'll, I'll say this. I think that in any of our shelters, the most nests that we will recommend with a stove would be one. And that would only be a half nest, not a full, like you can get with the, uh, like the, the silver tip or the Cimarron, we do a full nest. You cannot run a stove with those. Um, some of the shelters, like uh, a Red Cliff, you can actually get two half nests in, but you get into clearance issues and just clutter um, and clogging up the alleyway in the center. So while you might be able to do that, I don't think I would recommend it at all. Um, so I'm going to say one nest and a stove. And beyond that, the guidance that I've got is typically if it's cold enough that you need the stove, um, it is cold enough that you most likely don't need a nest uh, just for bug protection. Now, there are situations where you might want to take it anyway. Like I've got a 13-month-old daughter who likes to put dirt in her mouth and rocks and you know, play with sharp sticks and whatever. So I can stick her in the nest and kind of contain her. And I know that she's going to be safe. So it it might make sense even in cold weather for me to take a nest just for that reason. Um, So like in an eight person, I might take a half nest and a stove. Um, But most of the year, if I'm, if I'm taking a stove, I probably don't need a nest. I generally agree with that. Most of the time, you know, most of the time, if I if I am doing more of a base camp thing, I would I would actually prefer to use a cot and not even worry about the nest. If I'm just more worried about being on the ground and bugs and stuff like that. Cool. Yeah. Um, awesome. I think I think that handles it. Can we can we talk size real quick? And, and size is so hard to talk about, but. Um, Cimarron, Red Cliff, Half Nest. Those that's those two are exactly the same size, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And how many people fit in that? That's that, two. That, that yeah, that's two two six foot adults. I mean, maybe you could fit a small child in with you if it was a couple. Um, but it's not a it's not a three adults by any means. Got it. And then our just maybe the next popular size would be kind of that eight man half nest. 
Um, how many people can you stick in there? Family of four, no problem. Yeah. Um, you could probably do a family of six. Yeah. Cool. All right. I think just, uh, just sleeping area, you know. Yeah, in, in sleeping area for sure. I think I think our second most popular nest is actually the Cimarron full nest. Hmm. Um I think when I looked at the stats, um that you could do four people in as well. Mm -hmm. Um pretty easily. So mm -hmm. but but no stove with the full nest. Yeah, no stove. No stove. Cool. Um trying to see if we have any more nest questions. Um, uh, a lot of a lot of people wondering too about dogs in their nests and things. Um, I guess that that goes kind of the same as people bodies most of the time, right? If you can fit two people in a nest, you can probably fit fit one person in a big dog or two people in a medium sized dog. Does that kind of make sense? There are two people and four tiny dogs. Four tiny dogs, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really depends on that. Um, you know, yeah if, you, yeah, if your dog's the size of a human, you probably, yeah, that, that gives you better. Yeah, exactly. And, and it depends on how they sleep. I have two dogs that are very similar sized, and one sprawls himself out in where a limb is in every direction, and he takes up probably almost the same amount of space as a five-foot-tall human. The other one always curls herself up in a little ball, and she probably doesn't take up much more room than a basketball. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I take up all the room, so it's just me going in that space. But <laughs> um, Awesome. The nests, I think we got those kind of taken care of. Um, how about a, a quick one? What's the optimal stove size for a Cimarron? uh it really it really depends um you can run a cub through probably an sxl and you could make a case for all of those so a cub a medium a large or an sxl um, a cub would just you know take the chill off give you something to do uh, you start getting into a medium you can heat it pretty well you go to a large from a medium you decrease your work in breaking branches by 25% because you've got a four inch longer stove box. Um, so large, I'd say is a, a good size. That's a very popular size for the Cimarron. And then if you're doing deep cold stuff or you're, you know, late season, uh, melting a lot of snow to make water, um, you could make a definite case for an SXL because when you go to the SXL, it's the height of a large, but it's a bigger cooktop. So you might be able to get more pots on the SXL versus a large. And if you're melting snow, you know, if you can get two or three pots versus one, you're speeding your production by two or three times. And that, that might, that just takes so much time as it is that anything to speed that up is a benefit. Got it. So, um, how about, how about this question? I'll, I'll trim that question down a little bit. If you could only have one stove in the Cimarron for the rest of your life. Either a large or a large U-turn for me. Large or SXL? Large U-turn large or SXL? 
right for me mm -hmm. it depends yeah. probably if i was if i did more hardcore winter versus around the shoulder stuff got it so if you were in northern canada most of the most of the year you might choose the sxl yeah for yeah. sure yeah and then us kind of um in the southern part of the country anyways uh we don't we don't get that coldness necessarily right. uh, yeah i think i would i would choose a large as well um cool how about a, another quick one uh best tent for bike packing i know kevin you've done a little bit of that you know i've seen people use all sorts of different stuff um I've seen the Cimarron used a few times by bike packers in Southern Arizona in the winter. Uh, but then again, more of the light and fast bike packer is going to maybe prefer something like uh, Eolus, right? Where they sleep under there and then they toss the bike under. They have enough space to toss the bike under as well. Uh, I have seen some people bike packing with teepees and hot tents in the winter. Um, I do know, what's his name? Ben Weaver. Um, mm -hmm. he, he's done, he does like bike packing, but he does outdoor concerts on the national forest along the way. And he'll do like fat biking. And I've seen him do, I think he used the red cliff and maybe a larger SXL. Mm -hmm. And I know the guys from backpacker magazine years ago did a fat tire bike in the boundary waters in the spring. And they used like an eight man. They went full out having a good time. So mm. I don't know if there really is a right or wrong answer. I'll say that the Cimarron is a really useful shelter in a lot of different ways. And it's almost it's almost something that almost everyone should have in their quiver, right? It, mm -hmm. it can tuck into most campground spots. It's big enough to put a family of four if you want, but you, it can be one and a king if you want, or a nest in the stove. And so it can really do a lot of stuff. Um, but I don't know if I can really say there is a best. It just really depends on the situation. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's going to be a, a comfort, weight, and pack size question. You know, if you want to be able to stand up and walk around, you're probably in an eight-person um, but you know, people pay a lot of money to reduce weight on bicycles. So, uh, yeah. And I mean, some people try to bike pack where they don't even really wear a bike, right? They have a couple small packs and everything is on the bike. Mm -hmm. And some people pull Bob trailers. It's really yeah. kind of all over the board. Um, so. Yeah, totally. And, and just having run, um, I've done a fair amount of bikepacking, but just having run the Cimarron by myself this fall, uh, the Cimarron is definitely like, it's, it's like a palace for one person. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty nice. You fit everything in there. <laughs> um, cool. So from bikepacking, let's go to, um, we had we had some questions about the trekking pole hitch and just kind of how what what tents you could put that in I guess so uh, trekking pole hitch how how tall can you can you make it and what does it make the most sense for we so, really do well go ahead Nathan 
if you want. Uh, yeah, I was going to say Silvertip, uh, LBO, and Cimarron. Um, the Cimarron needs a six-foot pole, and for most trekking poles, when you go uh, beyond a six-foot length, they get a little wobbly. So the next pole height up for us would be a four-person or red cliff, which is six foot ten. And if you make two trekking poles into that length, it gets, you know, it gets pretty wobbly. Uh, whereas our our dedicated carbon pole is much much stiffer. Um, that difference is much less noticeable in a Cimarron, an LBO, or a silver tip. So, got it. So the the Cimarron's kind of the tallest tent that yeah. we make that you would want to stick that trekking pole hitch in. Yep. Sweet. Um, cool trek pull hitch. Um, feel like that might actually be uh, be all the questions that I have. You said you were going to do something on floorless. Oh yeah, I had an I just an idea. You know, um, floorless seems to be a touchy. You know, like a such a new thing for a lot of people. You know, when you, when you say floorless shelter or, or man, there's no bug netting right on the inside of that shelter. Like that's, it's kind of, um, kind of far out for a lot of people. Uh, so I guess my question was going to be, you know, why, why floorless? Well, can right, I take for, this one? Can I take the starting for, point of this one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's amazing how fast our perceptions change, right. Um, of what we need what we desire, right? Um, and I'm not saying what's on TV is necessarily real or anything, but you go back and you watch any Western and those guys are tooling around with just a bedroll under the tree, right? Mm -hmm. um, you see most older military stuff and there's like just some floorless kind of cabin tent set up, right? Um, and maybe they're on cots. Um, I would maybe kind of challenge the how much the floorless is needed. I think it's really something that's maybe come into what we think we need much more over the last 20, 30 years when we really don't. Um, that's just kind of my starting off point. Um, now, yeah, I get it. Some people have become secure with their, with, with, the full enclosure, right? And there are times, I, I don't say that we're a pure floorless company. I say that we make stuff that can work in both environments. But, and sometimes I just deploy a nest, period. Like if I'm in canyon country or something, I might not even take a canopy because I know I can find big alcoves. And in the desert, I may want the cleanliness of the nest more. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd, I think it's almost kind of funny that it's like you're blowing my mind because you're floorless. And if you look through mankind, we've been floorless most of our history up until, you know, recently. Mm -hmm. uh, Nathan, yeah. you, want, you want to take it on? Yeah. Um, First of, first off, I will say that I'm sitting in a house that is 
71 degrees right now because if it gets to 72, that's just a touch too warm. And if it gets down to, you know, 69 or 70, that's just a touch too cool. So I've got the thermostat set just so. And if I get in my vehicle, you know, I, I can turn the temperature up to just what I want. And I think that in modern society, we are so often heated and cooled and comforted that we become wimps and and we're just disconnected from the natural world we're disconnected from reality um and that's my spiel on that i I think sometimes it's good to get muddy or cold or you know have a wet butt from sitting on the ground or something um so that's that's my rant on that now specifically on floorless tents if you look at what a tent needs to do, it needs to provide shelter from the elements. So wind, rain, cold, snow, etc. cetera. Um, the, the math of this is we're looking at covered space and we're looking at weight of the shelter if you're backpacking it or it's foot propelled. So from a space to weight ratio, if you can cut the floor out of it, you get a whole lot more area that is covered uh, for less weight. Another way to look at that is you can have a bigger shelter that is more comfortable space-wise at the same weight as a floored tent. So, you know, you take something like our eight person that I am, you know, I'm six foot three, I can stand up and walk around in this thing and it's light enough that if I've got two or three other guys, I can backpack that in and we'll have three to four pounds of heated tent. Um, so that's really the, the why uh, behind floorless tents. Um, there are concerns with mud, bugs, wet ground, things like that, but those are very easy to overcome with a bit of knowledge and willingness to try. Yeah, the... Um... Some of those things, like you still can get water in a floored tent if you pitch it in a poor location. So, yeah. and if you a, get water in a floored tent, it is very difficult to get it out. Exactly. Now, I was, I was chatting with Trail from Go Hunt at um, BHA last year at the Rendezvous, and we we were kind of joking about this, but it's it's actually really true. And he was like, people keep asking me, like, well, how can you do floorless? And I was like. You know, I kind of like to think about it like you ever are walking up a mountain with your pack on and you sit down and you think maybe you're just going to throw your pad down and sit on it a little bit and um, start maybe glassing, using your binoculars, looking around a little bit. And it's kind of like that, except you put a shelter over you. You know, I mean, it's, it's not much different than the childhood thing of watching the cloud laying in the grass and watching the clouds go by it's it's not a lot different except for you have a shelter mm -hmm. yeah totally there's, there's 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 been lots of people taking dirt naps all the time right they'll, yeah. they'll take a nap in the dirt without anything but they can't sleep in the dirt right uh, um 
Cool, man. Uh, so, well, this was fun. We're in uh, we're in lockdown, most of us, at least. I, I don't know. Nathan, are you actually in lockdown in Tennessee? I, you know, I don't know. Um, or I, I'm I guess like, whatever they want to call it. We're, we're in quarantine mode. Um, yeah, school, a, yeah schools, a, are, schools are canceled for another month at least. Um, so, yeah, we're in we're in quarantine for sure. Got it. And we're at, uh, we're stay at home in Colorado here. That's where Kevin and I are at. And so all of us are working at home. Thus we get to talk and do podcasts instead. So, um, this was fun and hopefully we get to do it again sometime soon. Um, I don't know if Kevin, do you want to take us out? Um, sure. I mean, um, yeah, since, um, we are in lockdown, um, we are refocusing on the podcast. Um, I think we have a lot of really interesting content lined up, um, since it seems like most people in the U S are at home twiddling their thumbs, people are jumping out of the woodwork. Hey, I'll do a podcast. So I think we have some really interesting stuff talking about safety, photography, flying, um, first pack rafting descents. So check out the stuff we're going to be putting out. I think you'll find it as, uh, Interesting way to kill some time during while you're sitting at home on lockdown.